moving to our next institution. Um, the origins of um, the Rabbi Isaac Elchanan Theological Seminary reads, that's also late 1800s. So Yeshiva Eitz Chaim was an elementary school founded in 1886. Yeshiva University today has on its logo 1886 as a year of origin because Eitz Chaim eventually merged with Rabbi Isaac Elchanan Theological Seminary, which was established as a higher place of learning, a yeshiva, yeshiva gedola, advanced yeshiva in 1897. It was named after Rabbi Isaac Elchanan Specter, the chief rabbi of Kovno, who died in 1896. And why was it named after him? Because he was one of the few rabbis, the gedolim of the old world, who was uh, okay with people moving to America. In the eyes of other great rabbis, it was the Trefa Medina, the, the non-kosher land where the stones are impure. Whereas Rabbi Specter, he said it's okay to go, and it's okay for rabbis to go, and in fact rabbis should go to be leaders of the flock. So the yeshiva was named after him. It was basically just a yeshiva for people to learn at uh, in the first decade of its existence, um, and not to ordain rabbis. People off the boat who had been yeshiva students in Europe wanted a place that was comfortable for them. They were comfortable studying in a yeshiva environment. So this was a landing spot for a lot of you know, great uh, uh, learned men. But in between 1906 and 1908, there were some student revolts, student strikes, because they wanted more secular education. They wanted to be able to compete with the graduates of Schefter's seminary as rabbis for American Judaism, which you could not do unless you spoke a pristine English and had some kind of a secular knowledge. Uh, and that eventually led to the hiring of Bernard Revel in 1915. Revel would establish the high school, which is today MTA, uh, and eventually the college, Yeshiva College, in 1928. And, okay, we're in 1928. The college is formed. What was the purpose, the idea behind it? How did that all come about? So uh, money for the college was already being solicited starting from December of 1923. There were major banquets in big Manhattan hotels with all the fancy Jews of the swinging tw- the roaring 20s getting together to donate money to, to Revel's cause of building up a college. And it wasn't just a matter of uh, hiring a faculty and producing a student body. They had to have a campus. So uh, Reitz had been on Henry Street and then Montgomery Street in downtown Lower East Side They bought a campus uptown on Amsterdam Avenue between 185th and 187th Street, where the Yeshiva University main campus is today. Um, and it cost $5 million dollars to do all of this, which was real money in those days, a lot of money. Uh, who was doing this? So the answer are very wealthy and successful businessmen, Eastern European Jews, themselves immigrants, but who came at a fairly early age, 20, 30, 40 years before, had struck it rich, and wanted to, to, to be the benefactors of the philanthropists who would create a traditional Orthodox yeshiva college, with the Lampert family, the Gottesman family, the Fischl family being the key families involved, whose names are emblazoned on the buildings of Yeshiva University today. So Yeshiva College is an answer to the seminary. It's a response to the seminary. Um, what was the difference, and were there not any merger discussions between Okay, the- it's a very, very important question. So first, the question is, what was the purpose of Yeshiva College in particular? 
And the answer is there's a dispute about that. One school of thought says, well, this was of ideological conviction, the desire to bring together secular and Jewish learning under one roof, as though that is you know, the, the divine plan, Torah Umada, before, before Rabbi Norman Lamb coined the phrase to, uh, two generations earlier, this is some ideological experiment of bringing the two together. That's one approach to it. However, the real answer historically is that it was a matter of convenience. The students at REITs were going to college, but where were they going? They were going to City College on 137th Street or NYU downtown, and it was inconvenient or you're going to Columbia, 116th Street, it was inconvenient to have to schlep, to go from one place to another, traipsing around Manhattan, if you could have one place where secular education could be obtained and your Jewish learning, all the better. So as a practical matter, that's why Yeshiva College was established. There's a third angle to it also, and that is Every other religious denomination in America, the Christian denominations, have their various colleges. Why shouldn't the Jews have one too? But Yeshiva College never really served that purpose. Brandeis would ultimately serve that purpose of a a secular college under Jewish auspices. Yeshiva was clearly an orthodox institution where if you just wanted Jewish auspices, it wasn't going to be to your liking. Now, as for merger talks, the merger talks were were, uh, intense in the mid-1920s, because the the moneyed elite on both sides of the yeshiva-JTS divide did not really understand the difference between the two institutions. It was hard for a man like uh, Felix Warburg to understand why it is that you have to have in New York two traditional Jewish seminaries. Can't they just all get along? And even on the Orthodox side, there were some of the of the donors to yeshiva who did not understand why we need to have both places, because there was some overlap in terms of the financial contributions. Now, why then did merger talks fail? So three main reasons. One, Bernard Revel opposed it. Bernard Revel adamantly uh, um, expressed the idea that the yeshiva is Torah lishma, the study of Torah for its own sake as opposed to the seminary, which was designed as a, tra- as a trade school to produce American rabbis. Now, that sounded a little bit condescending and dismissive of what the seminary was trying to accomplish. And maybe he was a little bit condescending in the approach to it, but he had a point. There, there were differences in purpose to the two institutions that are nuanced and not everyone can grasp, but he tried to, to clarify them. Another uh, reason why there was a, it broke down was over the issue of um, Mordechai Kaplan. Kaplan had been an alum of, of Ritz. He went to Eitz Chaim in the old days. And he was a professor of homiletics and the head of the Teachers Institute at the seminary and was a very popular figure at that time. But he had already rendered himself non-kosher in the eyes of his Orthodox colleagues by virtue of abandoning the Jewish Center in favor of the Society for the Advancement of Judaism on West 86th Street and establishing Reconstructionist Judaism, which is essentially devoid of a belief in in, in a personal God, uh, borderline atheism. So how could Kaplan be a faculty member at a joint institution like this, which is a nominally Orthodox institution? And a third factor was you know, institutional loyalty. Each side had its own desires to rule over a combined venture, and no one was willing to budge. 
So there were talks in the 20s, there were even talks in the 40s, nothing ever came of it. How did the landscape change um, with these three major institutions post-World War II? Uh, okay, so the, the answer is, we'll go one at a time. When it comes to HUC, HUC started having competition in 1922. Stephen Wise, Rabbi Stephen Wise of, of New York and of great fame, American Jewish uh, Congress fame, um, World Jewish Congress, he established his own school, the Jewish Institute of Religion in 1922, which was supposed to be a progressive school, but without denominational label on the premise that HUC was clearly reformed and that HUC was anti-Zionist and JIR was avowedly Zionist. But it didn't make much sense for these two schools to compete against each other indefinitely. Uh, and plus, old line classical reform Judaism with an anti-Zionist um, bent was dying after World War II, after the Shoah with the establishment of the State of Israel. So that by 1947, there was a merger of HUC and JIR, so that the New York campus of JIR became HUC. And slowly over time, the New York campus became the dominant one. And it was in the news just a few weeks ago that Cincinnati is no longer going to have a rabbinical school. Now, we're, we're in the year 2022, so a lot of time has passed, a lot of water under the bridge. But it was clear that Cincinnati was becoming a Jewish backwater. The action is in the coastal cities of New York and L.A., and that's where the major campuses were uh, as the years went along. Um, and the school became not much of a graduate school for Judaic studies. Yes, there were people who did doctorates there, but usually those were people who were in the reform orbit already. It was mostly a, a professional school for the training of American reform rabbis. If we go to JTS, uh, after the war, it had its best years. It was a tremendous institution in the years between the 1940s and the 1970s. Uh, the faculty was outstanding. The, it was the latter years of Ginsburg, the glory days of Professor Saul Lieberman, where he authored the Tosefta Kipshuta, uh, J Abraham Joshua Heschel, who was always snubbed by JTS, never got the kavod, the honor that he deserved, but was a major figure in American Jewish life, professor of, uh, of mysticism. Kaplan was still doing his thing, retiring in 1963. There were Bible scholars, uh, H.L. Ginsburg, Many, many figures of great renown who taught at the seminary in the Finkelstein era, which lasted from 1940 to 1972, and conservative Judaism was the dominant American Jewish denomination at that time. Yeshiva uh, struggled mightily during the Depression and almost closed. Several times could have gone out of business, but it hung on by a thread. But it hung on. And in 1946 attained university status after Bernard Revel died in 1940 at a fairly young age. He was only 55 years old. There was a bit of an interregnum that lasted until 1943 when it was decided that they would hire Professor Samuel Belkin as the president. And Dr. Belkin was the president until his death in 1975. Uh, and university status was achieved with the help of government money Many graduate programs were established in Belfer Hall, the tall building on 184th Street and Amsterdam Avenue. Uh, medical school was established. A law school was established. 
The Graduate School of Judaic Studies, which is my alma mater, was strengthened and became a very serious program. So Yeshiva University as a university went through uh, something of a metamorphosis, but it grew as an institution. It then had really bleak years financially in the early days of Rabbi Dr. Lamb, but survived and came back strong and survives to this day as the flagship modern Orthodox institution in America. Where do you see the future? Uh, if you can take your crystal ball, um, the future of American Jewish institutions of higher education. So first we should distinguish between uh, Jewish studies on the university campus and specifically Jewish institutions. When it comes to university uh, campus, so Jewish studies was non-existent throughout the first three centuries of the American university experience. There were classes in Hebrew, in Bible, occasionally in some kind of rabbinics at the Ivy Leagues, taught usually by a Gentile. Then there were occasionally, there were figures who were apostate Jews who taught, uh, were dating back into the 18th and 19th century. But in the early 20th century, there was the possibility of endowed chairs of Judaic studies at the big schools. So Harry Wolfson at Harvard had been on campus since the 19-teens, hoping and praying for uh, a a tenured position, which he would eventually get in the early 1930s. And at Columbia, the Linda Miller chair, which was endowed in the late 1920s, and was given to Professor Salo Barone, who wrote the the massive social and religious history of the Jews. So by the 1930s, it is possible to have Jewish studies in the secular universities. How does that affect the seminaries? The answer is you don't have to go to JTS, HUC to get a doctorate in some kind of a Jewish uh, field. You can go to any number of institutions. And that's how it is today, uh, where there's plenty of Jewish studies on campus. The, um, There's the annual convention of the American Academy of Jewish Research, and much good work is being done, not all by Jews, sometimes by Gentile scholars of Jewish subjects. Um, Then when it comes to the the places that ordain rabbis, so the future future is not necessarily so strong. On the non-Orthodox front, there is a struggle. Cincinnati is closing. the, the reform schools have strong financial uh, backing, but are hurting for students. And uh, it's not the, the great venue that it once was, doesn't have the appeal that it once did. JTS has undergone uh, structurally a, a massive renovation project recently and is aesthetically a very great, a beautiful campus now. Its library, which was closed for a while, is now back and running. But are there the student, is the student population there not as strong as it once was? Uh, and precisely for that reason, there was recently announcement by, um, by the school that not every conservative synagogue is going to be able to have a rabbi this coming high holiday season. There's an insufficient number of rabbis. On the Orthodox front, uh, there, is a, there are, is a plethora of schools. Uh, Reitz now has competition to its left from Chovei Torah, to its right from a whole host of Haredi Yeshivot, which have been around since the 1930s. Uh, people have this erroneous impression 
that the Haredi yeshivot in America are a product of the post-Holocaust era. It's not really true. Um, Torah Vadas was founded in 1917. MTJ was founded in 1906. Uh, Nary Yisrael was founded in 1933. BMG was founded in 1943 during the war. So the post-Holocaust era, there was a flowering of these yeshivot and an incre- a dramatic increase in the number of students, but they had been around from long before. Uh, and these schools, of course, are doing quite well with little, little regard for whether they produce functioning clergy members. They simply exist as a place to study the Torah. Um, forgetting for a second that you are a, a Revel graduate so yes. with an Orthodox synagogue. If you were given today the funds to open up an institution of higher Jewish education, what would it be? What would it look like? That's a, fa- that's a great question. I've never contemplated it before, so you'll have to give me 10 seconds to think about it. Okay. But um, I would say the, the, the funds would not go towards the professional rabbinate. The funds would go towards scholarship for its own sake, but producing the kind of scholarship that appeals to as wide an audience as possible. What American Jewry needs uh, is to increase its literacy and its own religious heritage, which at the, at the very low level means you know, basic Hebrew reading that is lacking among uh, many of the 5 million American Jews. But at the more advanced level, the ability to read Judaic texts on one's own is a struggle. And there needs to be an institution that will cater to the educated class of people who have some background, but who would like to learn more and would like to read works that are not dense scholarship laden with footnotes galore that no one really wants to look at, but rather popular yet impressive literature. And, you know, funds that could go to that cause would make me very happy. This has been, we can go on and on. This has been absolutely fascinating. Again, uh, Rabbi Evan Hoffman and urge our viewers and listeners um, to listen to Rabbi Hoffman online. His American History and Jewish American History series and um, to uh, take a look at the partial themes and historical perspectives. I think you'll find it um, very enlightening and uh, fascinating work. And again, Rabbi Hoffman, thank you so much. Uh, for being with us today. Thank you for having me. My pleasure.